Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the prophet Habakkuk, and that was uh, part of what we had read tonight. So if you have your Bibles or you have your little electronic uh, devices that have Bibles on them, please open up to Habakkuk. It's a little hard to find, but uh, it's in there amongst the little short prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, so I hope you can find it with us. This series has been kind of interesting. We're looking at the prophets, and we're trying to take them in uh, roughly chronological order as best uh, Jeremy and I can guess at that. And uh, it looks like Habakkuk, he's a little bit easier to figure out because he is right before the uh, depredations, the invasions of the Babylonians. And so we're going to, we can pretty easily pin him right at the last part of the 600s BC after Nineveh has fallen and Babylon is, is transcendent again. It is already the world power once more. And, uh, during that last part of the 600s and the first part of the 500s BC, Babylon invades the Holy Land three times, and the last time actually destroys the temple and takes just about everybody captive and uh, exiles them into what we call the Babylonian captivity. And so Habakkuk is prophesying right before those events take place, probably within a decade or two of that series of invasions. And uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, But of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Habakkuk most reminds me of the main character of Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye. Because Tevye, when he prays, he complains to God. You know, his prayers are not super pious. They're mainly gripes. I mean, in one scene, which I think I've referenced before, uh, you know, he finds out there's going to be another persecution against the Jews. And he says to God, you know, I know we're the chosen people. But once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? And and that's Habakkuk. He is complaining to God. That's the whole. That, that's two thirds of this book is Habakkuk complaining to God, and because he's a prophet, God answering back. And Habakkuk, bless him, has written this down for us. So chapters one and two, we actually get the conversation back and forth between Habakkuk's complaining. And God answering. And then chapter 3 is a prayer that Habakkuk gives sort of in response to what has been revealed to him. And what he knows is now going to happen and how that's all going to ultimately work out. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Habakkuk chapter 1. Let's read Habakkuk's first gripe, his first complaint. And it's really just verses 1 through 4. The oracle that prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord... How long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me look on wrongdoing and look on trouble? Destruction and violence are in front of me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law becomes slack. Justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. And therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. 
What's Habakkuk mad about? What's he upset about? He's actually griping about his own people. He's griping about the injustice and evil that's going on in Judah, among the Jews themselves. God's chosen people. The last little bit of God's chosen people that exist. The, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, have already been wiped away. Uh, the, the Assyrians did that over a hundred or almost a hundred years before. And, and he says, but here I am, even though you did that to the northern kingdom for these same kinds of sins. I look around and I just see a corrupt nation. I see uh, people who, where, where the, the strong, in whatever way they're strong, politically or economically or socially or whatever, the strong just make prey of those who are weak. They take advantage. And that's the way, that's what people expect to happen now. And he says, and that's why justice is slack. That's why justice is not done. We, don't, we, we should be looking to the courts. We should be looking to the kings and the nobles. But we don't because we don't expect them to act any different. Any of this sound familiar at all? Do you ever get frustrated that the righteousness that ought to be in place in our culture fails again and again and again. And Habakkuk says, why do I have to watch this happening? I know what's right, but everywhere I look, I see what's wrong. Why aren't you doing something about this, God? I've prayed and prayed and prayed. Why aren't you acting? Let me stop right there and just take... Take a minute to think about Habakkuk's problem. It's our problem. We all live in this fallen world. We all live in this world that is perverted and twisted by you know, multiple generations of sin and the effects of sin. And so we know what that's like. We see this kind of injustice, the same kind of stuff that he's upset about. That happens today as well. And he says, I've prayed about it. How come you haven't fixed it? Sometimes I get the question, sometimes from older people, sometimes from the college students that I teach, how come prayer doesn't work? Now, in that sentence, how is the word work being used? When somebody says, how come prayer doesn't work, how are they using the word work? I've thought about that a lot. I actually think that when a person asks that question in that tone, what they mean is, I know what it means for a light switch to work. I go over there, I push the button, or I flip it, and the effect that I want to have happen, happens. I know what it is for my car to work. I sit in it, I turn the key, it turns on, and it takes me where I want to go. I actually think that's how work is being used in the question, why doesn't prayer work? Let me ask you something. Does asking a favor of your friend work? Well, if it does work, it doesn't work the way a light switch does. It doesn't work the way a car does, right? Because people aren't machines. And there is something creepy about our culture in particular that wants to reduce everything, even the people around us, to devices to be used. And they either work or they don't. And if they don't work, right? 
people aren't machines. Is God a machine or is he a person? So when we ask him, it's just like asking one of your friends. And they're your friend? God's your friend? Both want to respond to you. But there may be a bunch of reasons, some of which you don't know, uh, for how they're going to respond or how that's going to play out. And that's, that's always the dynamic of prayer. That's why Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's a good thing for us to learn to pray as well, because we're not talking to a genie in a lamp. We're not talking to a machine uh, we're not giving commands to a slave. We are asking something from someone who loves us. So Habakkuk has this problem. He says, I live in this unjust society. I live, you know, surrounded by these terrible things that are going on. And I prayed about it. And how come you're not doing anything? Why do I still have to watch this happening day after day, night after night? God answers because Habakkuk is a prophet. Habakkuk becomes the mouthpiece of God now, and he answers, and that's what starts in verse 5. Let's look at that. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. For a work is being done in your days that you wouldn't believe it if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Dread and fearsome they are. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horsemen come from the far away. They fly like evils. eagles, swift to devour. And he goes on for a while describing just how scary the Chaldeans are. Who are the Chaldeans? Where's Chaldea? That's the ancient name uh, for where Babylon is. The Babylonian kingdom is the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And so, what's God saying? When, when Habakkuk says, look, I'm here in Judah, and, and even though Judah is supposed to be your people, and they're supposed to be bound by your covenant and your law, what I see is just rampant sin and rampant injustice and rampant abuse of the poor and the weak by the strong. What's God's answer? Don't worry, Judah is going to be punished. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come and exercise my justice. And, and there's nobody in Judah, there's no force in Judah that can withstand the Chaldeans once they turn their interest towards uh, Judah. There, there's, no, there's no army strong enough in Judah to resist them. And that's basically what the, the gist of this uh, revelation is. I'm bringing the Babylonians to punish. So, Habakkuk should end around verse 11. Is Habakkuk happy now? No, he is not happy. That is not the answer that he wanted, as frequently happens. That is not what he had in mind. And he begins to complain again, starting in verse 12. You've got your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 12 is Habakkuk's second complaint. He says, I don't like what's going on in Judah. I've prayed about it. You need to fix it. God says, here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Babylonians are coming to punish uh, the, the people of Judah. And Habakkuk says this in response, Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One, 
You cannot die, O Lord. You have marked them for judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for punishment. Verse 13 is the kicker. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? That's the gist of Habakkuk's gripe. It goes on down through the first verse of chapter 12. But but what's he mad about? God hates evil. That's what Habakkuk was counting on. He says, you know, look at all the evil that's going on in my, among my people. Fix it. And, and God hates evil. God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly holy. It is impossible to be more righteous than God is. He is as perfect as righteousness can be. Our unrighteousness that we are so used to is, is, is agonizing to God. It is horrifying to God. It is disgusting to God. I'm so used to some of my sins, I sadly don't even notice them. Especially if I've been out of prayer or out of the Word. I don't even realize that I'm sinning. God feels every one of my sins. And His justice says that sin needs to be punished. God can't look on evil. He's too holy. His eyes are too pure. Habakkuk knows all that. That's his theology. So he says, why? How can you possibly use the Chaldeans? How Can any righteous thing come out of a people as unrighteous as the Chaldeans? Yeah, the people of Judah are bad. I was griping about that earlier. But good grief, the Chaldeans, they're awful. They're terrible. They're, I mean, we're idolatrous in Judah, but we're nothing like the Chaldeans, nothing like the Babylonians. They're awful. How can you use people who are worse to punish people who are at least a little better than they are? God, that doesn't make any sense. How are you letting that happen? That I don't understand at all. It says the Chaldeans are people... They are far more brutal than anybody in Judah. They're like fishermen for people. Remember when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men? That's a sweet image, right? Not in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, he says, that's the way the Chaldeans treat human beings. They just cast their net. They drag people up. They watch them die gasping and pick what they want. That's, that's how the Chaldeans are building their empire right now. That's what Habakkuk says. That's his analysis of current events, circa 1620, or I mean 620 B.C. He says, they're terrible people. How can you use that? And then chapter 2, verse 1, he kind of has his rant, and then he says, I will stand at my watch post, and I will station myself on my rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me, and what he will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk says, all right, I've laid it out. God's not being fair. He should have punished Judah. God says, well, I am going to punish Judah. I'm going to use the Chaldeans. Habakkuk says, you can't use the Chaldeans. They're even worse than Judah. That's not, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to wait to see what God says about this. Now we have the longest reply, almost all of chapter 2 is God's reply. 
And he, he says this, he, his, the, the, the core of his reply is, don't worry, it's not like I'm going to leave the Chaldeans unpunished either. They also will be punished. You have to be patient, you have to wait, but they'll be punished as well. And in fact, if you are patient, you will realize that all sin will be punished and the entire earth will come to realize the glory of God. That's, that's the gist of what God communicates in chapter 2. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3, just kind of the opening of God's response to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. The Lord replied, replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald can run away with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God says, I'm about to give you a prophecy. There is a time in which this prophecy will be fulfilled. You may have to wait to see these things happen, but I guarantee they will happen. This is God saying, you, if you're going to be my person, I'm calling on you to do two things. One, believe what I'm telling you will really happen. And two, be patient while you wait for it to happen. That's what God says. And then he, begin, he turns his attentions to the Babylonians. Look at verse 4 and following. Look, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And then he goes on to continue to discuss the Chaldeans. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and he takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? Say, and then he launches into about five different taunts that the people of the world will say to the Babylonians. And that's, that's the bulk of this chapter. So he says, uh, the Babylonians are proud, they're full of themselves. He's already griped about this back in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1, verse 11, he says, they make their own strength their God. They worship themselves, their own power. Sound familiar? Uh, and, and because of that, they are proud. They're trusting in themselves. And he says, and that's going to be their downfall. They are as greedy as the grave. They're never satisfied. They're always taking, taking, taking. And that's going to be their downfall. Because they gather in all the peoples, then all the peoples are going to turn and mock as they fall and, and their empire collapses. And that's what God promises is going to happen to the Babylonians. Now, in the middle of that, he has this one little phrase. I don't know if you even noticed it. Verse 4, second half of verse 4, he says, They're proud. They're puffed up. That's the Chaldeans. But the righteous will live by his faith, or the righteous will live by his faithfulness. It's just a little contrast that's thrown out there to say, yes, that's the Babylonians, and judgment is coming because of them. And the only people who are going to survive the judgment are those who are righteous, who will, will be saved, will live through their faith or their faithfulness. The word Paul uses is a word 
that I think this is the only time in most translations that it's translated faith. It's, it's the word, it's the Hebrew word emuna. It doesn't mean believing somebody when somebody tells you something. It doesn't mean, oh, okay, I trust you. It, it actually, the root of this word emuna or amuna is uh, to be steady, to be firm. You remember when the Israelites fought the Amalekites? That's actually the first time I think it occurs in the Old Testament. Moses' hands, as long as they were up, what would happen? They would be winning the battle. If he dropped his hands, which, you know, the battle lasts several hours, you're going to do, uh, they would. And so they, they eventually propped his hands up with a rock so they could win the battle. So his hands would remain steady, right? So they could win the battle. Mostly this word amuna or amuna is used to describe God. God is faith. God is steady. God is firm. God is reliable. That's the guts of the meaning of this term. The righteous will live by what? The righteous will live by what? I make this point because this is a key idea in the book of Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, he says, this is the... It's already been written about. The righteous will live by faith. God has revealed this incredible salvation of faith through faith. As it's written, the righteous will live by faith. He's referring to Abaca when he says that. And for a variety of reasons, we tend to uh, join the word faith with the word belief. To make the word faith just mean, well, when somebody tells you something, you say, okay, I believe that. It has to do with psychological assent. That isn't really the biblical meaning of the word faith. The opposite of faith is not really unbelief. The opposite of faith in Scripture is usually wavering, going back and forth in your behavior. It's when uh, Elijah says to the Israelites, how long are you going to limp between two positions? On Fridays you worship Baal. On Saturdays you worship God. Back on Fridays to Baal. Back again the next Saturday on God. How long? It's time to be steady. It's time to say, this is where I stand. And I will not be moved. That's faith. That's the Old Testament faith. That's the New Testament faith. God says, I need people who whatever they see happening, whether they see my justice occurring or whether they have to wait for my justice to occur. I need people who are able to be steady. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're never going to sin or or, or fail. You, You are. God doesn't want you to, and he's got ways to help you get better at that. But it means you are not constantly in and out of your faith. I just don't feel like being a Christian this week. I'm going to take two weeks off of church. You know, I just don't feel... God needs people who are steady. They say, this is it. I've made my commitment. 
I have made my commitment to God's will. I've made my commitment to Jesus Christ. I will not be moved. That's what, that's the guts of what it means to be uh, a faithful person. And God says, yeah, destruction is coming to the Chaldeans. A terrible destruction is actually coming. The righteous will live by faith, by their steadiness, by their firmness, by their faithfulness. And then he goes through all these taunts that people are going to say to the Chaldeans. They're going to make fun of them in a variety of different ways. People will say, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy uh, by extortion. You've forgotten that God is the one who is in control of everything. So you think because you're gathering up all this money that somehow you're more secure, your own creditors are going to laugh when you collapse. Sound familiar? Uh, in verse 9, he says, Woe to him who builds his house through unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. And, and again, you've kind of forgotten who you're dealing with here. The beams of your own house, verse 11 says, the, the stones that you've used to build what you've built will turn against you if God decides that he wants that to happen. Woe to the one who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. You know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. That's the mantra of politicians, big and small. You know, yeah, I know, we've got to do some things that look a little underhanded, but it's for the good in the long run. And God says, no, it isn't ever for the good to do what is unrighteous. He says, God has already determined that that kind of work, the labor of people who are willing to do unrighteousness, to try and build their community, to build their society, that is just fuel for the fire. That's what he says in verse 13. That's just turning into fuel for the fire. And then he has this fascinating phrase in verse 14, which a lot has been written about recently, for those of you who want to look some of that up. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? People who try to say, oh, well, I've got to do some unjust things, their labor is going to be wiped out. It's going to be burned up. But the earth itself will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord the way the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? I think the waters are the sea, usually, we think. But what does it mean, the waters cover the sea? What is it that the waters are covering? In the, in the, in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, what is it that the waters are covering? If there was no water there, what would be there? Yeah, but a big hole, right? A giant hole, in some cases five miles deep hole, right? That's, I think that's what's going on here. There is this huge gap that the waters cover to make the sea. What's the corresponding gap then? There's something missing that will one day be filled. There's a hole that will one day be filled the way the waters fill the, the hole that makes the ocean, right? What is that? It's the hole that should be filled with knowledge of the glory of God. We are, it's like we are all living on the seafloor. 
We are living in a deep abyss. Think of the Marianas Trench. We're just living down at the bottom there. Far, far, far away from the light. Far, far, far away from, from light. One day, the whole world around us will be covered over with the knowledge of God. I don't, I don't even know how to think about what that means. But look at it like this. Think back to your last birthday. You may have had a good birthday. You may have had a terrible birthday. But imagine that somebody you know gave you the perfect birthday gift. I mean, really thoughtful, really kind. It really got to who you are. And, and you know it was kind of costly for that person, at least, to give you that gift. In that moment... Now, you may be kind of a jerk sometimes to that person, but in that moment, is it even possible to tempt you very much to act like a jerk to a person who's just given you such a wonderful gift? Is it? It's not even possible to tempt you to say snotty things back to them, to play dirty tricks behind their back. I mean, it's just, it's, you're so filled with the gratitude of what a nice thing they've just done. What would it be like for the whole world to be filled with knowledge of the glory of God? When we're tempted, part of why we're able to be tempted is because at least for that moment we've managed to forget how amazingly good God is. The incredible things that he's done for us, that he does for us every second of every day, and that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We managed to push it out of our mind long enough to do something kind of creepy and gross. Right? That's how that works. Imagine the whole world filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Imagine it. It's not that people can't sin. It's that because of the glory of the Lord and their knowledge of the glory of the Lord, sin is revealed for what it is. This kind of cheap, tawdry, gross behavior that I don't want to engage in anymore. That's what we have looking to look forward to. I think it's one of the most magnificent images that we've got in the Old Testament of what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. The glory of the Lord uh, the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the water covers the sea. So that's the promise that's made. Uh, there are various woes that God uh, lays out. The final one is against idolatry. And he says, you know, people who trust in idols like the Chaldeans do and other people do too, they're just wasting their time. And, and chapter 2 ends, look at the very last verse of chapter 2, verse 20. These, these idols that people are praying to, they can't do anything. They don't have any breath in them. They're nothing. Then verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There are people who make gods in this image or that image. We mainly, human beings make gods because we kind of want to boss God around. We want to have a God that will do what we want. And this is the image of the real God. And there will come a day where the entire world, they will turn and they will see God for who he really is. And they will be silent 
in worship and in awe. Well, in response to that revelation, Habakkuk's troubled heart is still. He's, I mean, the problems that he started with are still there. Judah has not yet been punished, and justice has still not yet been established. And the Chaldeans are going to come, and they're going to cause a great deal of trouble. But Habakkuk is more at peace. And chapter 3 is a prayer where Habakkuk talks about the glory of God. He talks about it in military terms. He talks about God coming to punish, to bring his wrath. Kind of the crowning jewel of chapter 3 is the last few verses. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn and look at verse uh, 16 and following of chapter 3. I hear, Habakkuk says, And I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Habakkuk says, yeah, I've complained about the Chaldeans, but I will be one of those faithful ones. I will be one of those whose faith is firm. I will wait and see that God... If he punishes us with the Chaldeans, that he will in turn punish them. And then he says this, verse 17, Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He makes me tread upon the heights. He says, I know bad times are coming for my people. I know a calamity is coming on my nation. I will get through it because God makes me steady. The righteous will live by their faithfulness, by their steadiness, by their firmness, by their faith. And and Habakkuk says, and it's God who will give me the strength to be faithful. It's God who will give me the strength, like the feet of a deer, whatever's going on, to stay steady and to trust in God, even through bad times. It's a powerful book. It's a little short book. It's beautiful. It's worth reading. I hope you'll be encouraged to read over it this week. And it and it resonates with our gospel. Jesus Christ came to bring God's will to fruition, to begin to spread the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord across the world. And that's continuing to this day and will continue until Jesus comes in his final victory. And you're part of that. If you know the story, you're already part of Jesus' army to spread that word. It's your duty and my duty to tell people about the glory of the Lord and to bring them into this knowledge. And if you've never responded to Jesus' offer of salvation through belief, through faith, through baptism, through the new life, then we invite you to take that step tonight. If you have needs of another kind, maybe you have prayer needs or something else that you want to talk to us about, we also invite you. If, If anything we can do for you tonight, why don't you come and tell us as we stand and as we sing.